There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome, 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 welcome to the Trampoline Hall podcast. Welcome back if you're coming back. Welcome to the first time. If you're here for the first time, if you're not sure, well, just welcome. Welcome to the Trampoline Hall podcast. I am your host, Misha Globerman. Trampoline Hall, as you probably know, is a lecture series that takes place in a bar, usually in Toronto, but sometimes we go to other cities. Uh, the one rule of Trampoline Hall is people give lectures on subjects on which they are not professionally expert. It cannot be their job to know the thing. After each lecture, we take questions from the audience. And in the podcast, in every episode, we give you one lecture with one Q&A uh, chosen from our vast archives, chosen by Kate bars. Um, I will introduce this episode's lecture for your listening pleasure. The topic is cooking culture, and the lecturer is Mina James. Thank you. It always starts the same way. A certain look in his or her eyes, the way they tilt their head the slight pause they take before the words slide out. Sometimes, most of the time, I know it's coming. It's one of the most frequently asked questions of my life. Where are you from? The context always changes. In a middle school, a cab, at the dentist, on the street, at a bar, on a date, babysitting. At my various places of work, the demographics of the person asking span the spectrum of newly arrived visitor to the city, Old person, young person, millennial, child, white, brown, black, Asian. I would guess about 75% of the time it's men who ask and about 25% of the other time it's women who ask. But it's still men and it's still women who ask. My answer always changes depending on my mood. Frequently I play dumb and say, Canada. I like to make the person really work for it. The follow-up statement is predictable. No, where are you really from? If I'm in a foul mood, which, let's be honest, is about 45% of the time, I usually reply with the terse response of, uh, from here? I don't know what you mean. I know exactly what they mean, and they know exactly what they mean. What I get from these interactions over time is that my identity is always a question, always a mystery to be solved, a problem to be zeroed in on and fixated on until I fill in the blank for them and fix it. But who am I on the outside, but who I am on the outside to these people has never been reconciled with who I feel I am on the inside. I fall very, very far away from the good immigrant picture that most Canadians have of a semi-peppy brown chick speaking with a Canadian accent. I'm not a doctor, 
a lawyer, an engineer. I certainly don't work in finance or politics. I don't celebrate Diwali. I'm not Hindu or Sikh or Muslim, and I bet some of you were thinking that. I can't sing Bollywood songs off the top of my head, but let's all just keep in mind that these are fairly arbitrary markers of identity to begin with. Uh, my parents are from the southern province of India, which is Kerala, and through the long history of colonialism, makes it one of the few Christian provinces in the country. So I grew up as in a hardcore Catholic household, and that generally made me feel closer to the storylines and struggles of someone like Maria from The Sound of Music, instead of the shortcomings of the play and movie Dave Das. Sidebar, I did try to watch Dave Das as a teenager like four times, and I fell asleep almost every time because the movie is like seven hours long. I really enjoyed all the clothes, though, so my large takeaway from what is considered one of the cinematic masterpieces of Bollywood film was I really liked the purdy costumes. I am neither a good brown person by colonialistic Canadian standards, and I'm definitely not a good person by my own auntie and uncle standards. I have always and maybe always will exist somewhere in the middle of the spectrum of cultural belonging. And I am not so narcissistic as to think this experience is unique to me. Heck, it's not even that unique to South Asian people. You just have to ask a couple, you just have to have a couple of drops of melanin in you to spark some level of curiosity. Uh, but for all my insecurities and confusions of who I am as I grew up and where I belong in this world, the one area of my identity, my culture, my race that I have felt fully entitled to relax into has been the kitchen. More specifically, the mythical Indian kitchen. And why shouldn't I? I mean, I grew up eating curries and traditional dishes and not-so-traditional dishes made by, by straight-from-the-homeland mother who played her role as home cook extraordinaire better than anyone from Central Casting could, partly because she wasn't a thick-accented stereotype, but a real person who, after 20 years of living in Canada, had a soft lilt in her voice when she spoke. My mom was and continues to be my subconscious in the kitchen. I used to watch her chop onions without crying. Her short, strong arms would crush mustard seeds and coriander in a marble mortar and pestle. I used to watch her take a red chili and bite the end off of it and eat it raw in her mouth, tasting for freshness and spice levels, as she would say. She stored her spices, much to the embarrassment of her children, in recycled pasta and jam jars without any labels on it. And she said she knew what spice was which just by smelling. She was a badass. Before celebrity chef culture, before local restaurateurs became heroes in their neighborhoods, I knew my mom and almost every auntie I encountered in my life was literally and figuratively crushing it in the kitchen. <laughs> Food and the kitchen, like in many other cultures, is emblematic of many things like community and celebration. If it was Christmas or Easter or I was getting the Catholic Rite of Holy Communion for the very first time, it didn't matter what it was we were celebrating, food would be there and a lot of it. Every auntie would prepare a variety of dishes, and some of which confused me or grossed me out, but most I would eat greedily, going back for seconds in secret, worried my preferential treatment of one dish would imply that I favored one auntie's cooking over another, which I did. Food in my household was also synonymous with love. You could not enter my house without my mom trying to force feed you. It got so bad that I would warn my friends who came over to not eat that granola bar in their bag at that they saved for a snack for later. As I got older, this routine of overfeeding my friends felt like a true test of friendship, and I became less apologetic of it. I would still provide my friends with ample warning, but I would be more matter-of-fact about it all. 
Very famously, in my early 20s, when I did decide to bring a boyfriend home to meet my family for the first time, my mom, eager to please, had whipped him up several curries, a side of roasted chicken legs, and three whole steaks. Three whole motherfucking steaks. And she did all this because one time, off the cuff, I mentioned he likes steaks and chicken. Keep in mind, this was a lunch for just four people in total. Another time, in first year university, my mom came to visit my residence and had brought two plastic bags of home-cooked meals with her. I had a small mini-fridge and had no idea how I was going to store all this food. I asked my roommate, who was from Halifax, who had once described her ideal meal to me as meat and potatoes, to do me a solid and eat one of the Tupperwares of chana masala my mom had made. I watched as her face flushed and tears ran down her cheeks while she ate her very first curry dish. I broke her curry virgin stick. At one point, I told her she could stop because she looked like she was in pain. But she shook her head no and said, but it's delicious. She could have been lying, but I wasn't going to disagree. To me, it was fucking delicious. Of all the curry dishes my mom made, chana masala was and is my favorite. I would eagerly request it when coming home from a visit from university. I would ask to watch her make it so I could try to recreate the magic of it on my own. And for those of you who aren't familiar with chana masala, first of all, shame on you. Second, it is a relatively simple dish that employs garlic, onions, ginger, and spices with tomatoes and chickpeas, a vegan or vegetarian's dream. Chana masala can actually take a long time to make depending on which method of preparation you choose to employ. And like most dishes that are called a curry, there isn't often a standard recipe that everyone follows. The internet and celebrity chefs will tell you there is a standard curry recipe, but they are lying to you. Often a true Indian home cook will improvise and add peas or potatoes or switch out the very famed garam masala used in the recipe with a hotter spice blend like tikka masala. Needing an exact recipe is a, Western, is a rule for Western audiences, but falls very, very far away from the rules of a real Indian kitchen. My love and obsession with chana masala became so infectious and deep that a year after my mother had passed away, my wonderful half-Jewish, half-Irish partner went on a mission to bake me chana masala that reminded me of how my mom made it. He watched countless YouTube videos, looked up various techniques, asked me a million questions, until one day after work, I returned home to a bowl of warm chana masala that made me weep with memories of my mother. He got real close. He'd done real good. But that is the thing about curry. It is marked forever by the person who makes it. Their preferences and tastes change a dish, even slightly in profile and flavor. From heat to sweetness to salt, curry's central ingredient is mystery. Witnessing my partner's search for the most authentic chana masala he could find was pretty hilarious. It also meant he said he didn't trust white-looking chefs like Gordon Ramsay or, John or Jamie Oliver. I gently reminded him that the British spent hundreds of years colonizing India and that curries regularly grace the menus of pubs all across the UK and maybe trusting a British person on what curry is isn't entirely incorrect. Controversial, I know, but that's the slippery thing about identity and culture. It's always changing, and history is constantly adding new pages to the stories we continue to tell ourselves over and over and over again. There are many parallels I drew between my partner searching for the authenticity of chana masala and me searching for my most comfortable, authentic, brown person self. But I can feel myself slipping into this giant cliche of brown people and our identities and being rediscovered through the lens of food and the kitchen and going back to the homeland. I can feel myself resisting. What I do know for sure is that the rules of the mythical Indian kitchen that my mother unconsciously taught me for several decades have become a useful mantra to live by. Be playful, improvise, be bold, be a bit of a mystery. Thank you so much.
Nina James, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to the Trampoline Hall Podcast. Thanks. I'm Misha Goldman. Up next, we'll Q&A. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Are there any questions? Oh my god. <laughs> yes, over here, yes. Do you make chana masala? Yeah, that sort of got a lighted over. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I make chana masala too, but right. I don't. It doesn't ever taste like the way my mom makes it, which is, I think, what at the time I was like really yearning to do it. And I had just lost my mom, and I was also not cooking it at the time. I was like very lazy and sad, so I didn't do anything. And then he did most of the cooking, to be honest. Does his does does he approximate your mother's chana masala closer than you do? Oh, um. <sighs> That's a good question. Thank I don't you. know. We've never had a chana masala off, so maybe we should. Oh, That's well, a good well, idea. Thank you. Where we like both make our own and then taste it. So when see. he made it, when he made it, you didn't have any like first reaction. You weren't like, huh, this is the most. You, you weren't like, wow, this is the second most like my mother's chana masala I've ever tasted. That wasn't. I think I was just so moved by the effort that he had put in that I like didn't care that much about the the parameters by what I was tasting. I I also think that. Um, it was pretty close, but at the time I couldn't, unless you're tasting it against another dish, it's hard to know, like if you're ever getting it exactly right. I would say that texturally speaking, his is a bit drier, which is something that happens with curry sometimes. You can make a curry almost like a stew, yeah. where it like is on low, this is very th- common, you just cook something for hours really low. Right. Um, but it's still really runny and juicy. And then sometimes it can be a bit drier and more like as if the spices are more prevalent wrapped around it. And I've seen many photos of chana masala that look like that. And I'm like, that's not my mom's chana masala. So but that's a little cool. drier than your yes, mom's. Yes, yeah. Okay, so, so that... So but the, the flavor is close, so which is what's the big thing. So the yeah. flavor is close, but the... Yeah. the, the Humidity is, not is different. Yeah. Okay, for, yeah. those, who, for yeah. those who wanted like the real specifics. Okay, yeah. great. Anything else? Any other, anything else people would like to know? Any other questions? Yes, over there. Yes, ma'am. Do you talk to your family about this? Do you talk to your family about this? You mean about, like, food? No, about the, like, tension between identity. Oh, about the tension between identity and food. Uh, I mean, yeah, but uh, it's kind of hard because, like, it, I, I think it depends on every family. My mom was, at the time, pretty, like, quiet and stoic and not very verbal about the way she would do things more than talk about things. So, like, she once saw me do 
a show or something in university and she went, oh, that was nice. And like, but there was no, so I don't know what she, her answer would be if we tried to broach that subject or talk about that subject ever. Because um, I think I did try and initiate those conversations, but I remember them just kind of fizzing out. Like, what would you ask? What would be a question that you'd ask about? Like, once I asked her to write down the recipe, and that's really hard, or, like, right. try to get really specific about, like, where did this recipe come from? Right. Who taught you how to cook? Like, those kinds of, like, things that I would, I would want to know, that I was curious about. She was pretty much like, I don't know, you just learn how to cook in India when you're a woman. And like that's like not a really great answer. Like I'm like okay, cool, awesome. <laughs> and then also she doesn't measure anything. Like I'd never seen measuring cups before or um, measuring utensils until yeah. I, I moved away from home because um, she didn't have any knew, of those. You, you knew you knew about when you say yeah. I saw. Them. I was like, oh, that's yeah. What those people use on the Food Network, right? right. right but yeah. you're like, people don't really use those at home. No. Like yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh, this is a fun novelty item when I yeah, first. Right. Now I use them all the time, and I don't feel that way about them. Um, Particularly because you, you kind of need them for baking. Oh so yeah, yeah baking is yeah, the, baking's the so same as that. cooking, so you can't really mess around. I think you have to really know the rules of baking before you can mess around a yeah, lot. There's not a lot of improvising mm, with like bread. You know, no, yeah. Right. It's like three ingredients, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Does that does that answer your question? I don't know if I answered. I kind of went on a tangent there. Well, the, the answer is kind of no, I guess. Like you were like, yeah. oh, did you explore like these nuanced relationships between like identity and cooking? And you were like. No. No. <laughs> like, I mean, with, like <laughs> with my sister, yeah. Like, I think we talk about it sometimes. Or, like, she will say to me, oh, I really miss, like, my mom's doll curry. And then we'll, we'll try and, like, make it together or something. So, like, I think we are having a conversation in that there is a sort of, like, unconscious dialogue that's happening. But it's not so explicit. But there wasn't a sense. There wasn't a sense of, like, oh, like, this is. But there was, like, a s that it was, like, connected with your identity when like I'm I'm a I'm yeah. a, f like in my in, in my world mm -hmm. I'm like connecting all this to like Jewish food and yeah. for me like among Jews with Jewish food there is a sense that like the whether the Jewish whether whether it is real or not or yes, whether it's yeah. like like that shit really matters right yeah. like if you're like eating the bagel that's from the right bagel place you are yeah. like practically just like you know in Israel drinking the waters of the yes, Red Sea yeah, yeah. and if you're eating the right bagel from the next yeah. place over you might as well be putting up a fucking Christmas tree yeah, you know yeah. and it's like that yeah. and is there that kind of like um, it, that kind of like territorialness yeah, like, or, or around there's a sense that like, around oh, Indian like, cooking. Like, oh, this is this stuff. Like, we're being the people who we are, or something. Like, was there any sense of that, or was it just like, now nah, I'm just making, I'm just making this, and it's good, and we eat it, and it's not. Like I mean, it would be interesting to see what happens over the next ten or so years, because I feel like food culture in general has like really exploded and become really niche, yeah. and people are like really into l learning about where the best thing is. Yeah. And I don't know if that's a product of like us being able to Google where the best thing is five kilometers away from us. Yeah. Um, because at the time it was just like my parents making food and also uh, growing up in the 90s, it, uh, you're mainly embarrassed because your cultural traditions are so specific and when you, that process of bringing home people for the first time is always, always a bit uh, walking on tender hooks, like trying to figure out whether they're gonna be comfortable in your home or comment on the smell or tell you like, so I think like my I, or be embarrassed by my mom trying to feed them all the time while we were doing study group or whatever. <laughs> so like I think that process for me, uh, it's now become really hip to talk about those things or like or not hip. I shouldn't say that, but like it's normalized. Never that hip to talk about your mom. I don't. Think. Yeah, maybe, probably not. That's maybe. a good is point. It, no, maybe? but is that, I mean, is that what you're saying? Like to talk about like that sort of cultural identity or that kind of like. Or it just feels more like in the water a bit more. Right, that we talk about like yeah. where we're from and how yeah. it's different from other places. Because I think those kids have grown up now, so they're now taught. There's like a. 
a, maybe I'm using this word wrong, but a, like a, an academic thing you can draw from. So like, uh, I'm just gonna name some people, like Hassan Minaj or Aziz Ansari. Like they talk a lot about that stuff, right. that cultural process of growing up and then like finding out who they were in their work and in their body of work. So I feel like people are more aware of it at least because they can consume it. specifically for Indian people? Yes, specifically for Indian people, yes. the idea that we talk about our yeah. culture, but like Indian people talk about their culture more. Yeah, more. because I, I feel like growing up, I knew a lot about Jewish culture because there were so many Jewish stories media, that I... Yeah. yeah. No. I don't know that's why. Sorry, you just made me become a, like a neo-Nazi. <laughs> neo I'm sorry. It's I'm a like, terrible yes, thing I do to control the media. No, that's not what I mean at all. No, but you were talking... I guess what I was thinking was that you were talking about... That's a stupid joke. But you were talking about like, oh, people in the media who are sort of prominent people who talk about this stuff and there was no no shortage of that among... There's a lot of depictions of Jewish culture in media and like... Yeah, like, I mean like, how many of us had to watch Schindler's List and like, then countless other movies uh, even that are more modern that yeah. involve Jewish identity or stories I feel like I was like Jewish people are great <laughs> like I grew up like really empathizing with them and really not obviously understanding that I wasn't them but like having a real sense of of their struggle or what they were trying to figure out or move through right um, because those stories were being told when I was a kid right so that yeah I, I think that it's, yeah. it, it's it's changing now so I don't know if you ask that question of me 10 years from now, would uh -huh. I be like, oh yeah, there's so many people talking about their, it just happens all the time. It hadn't occurred to me that like even when I described that thing growing up and yeah. that sort of sense of like the authenticity of all this great stuff, it's like it hadn't occurred to me that, oh, part of that even for me was informed by media, that this yeah. stuff gets romanticized, not just by my own family, but by the world, because it was sort of romanticized in, you know, wh whatever, in, in, in Woody Allen movies or in like yeah. Mordecai Richler books, or there's just lots of stuff out there that was kind yeah. of like, oh, this culture's great and interesting. And you feel like, did that, and you feel like that's come up for you more since you've grown up? Is that yeah, right? since mo more than I'm a, a, a full adult now. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Uh, sorry, that was a lot. Was yeah, a lot, we a just lot said about a my, lot of my childhood. No. Uh, <laughs> 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 anything, anything you guys would like to know or just talk about your childhood for a while? Yes, in the back, yeah. Um, if anyone tries to, like, guess your cultural identity while they're running you about it, do you ever just, like, go along with it for fun? Did anyone? What? Sorry? Okay. I think I heard the question. Do well, you want I, me to repeat yeah, it? Do you want to repeat it? Yeah. If, um, if anyone has guessed my cultural identity, have I just gone along with it for fun? Yeah. That's the question. Oh, like if they just guess wrong, you mean? Yeah. Um, I, I, say, I feel no, because I, maybe I'm just like really polite, and I just want to be... And I also feel sensitive of like... Maybe this is the like a little mini social justice warrior in me. I'm sorry to use those words. Um, just like not wanting to be confused with someone else's identity and then have to like talk about their identity um, with a sense of knowledge. So like I have been because of my hair. Lots of people sometimes think I'm either uh, Spanish or part Latin or part black. Those are common. And then I'm, I often don't feel, I feel so sensitive to those identities that I'm like, no, no, don't call me that. I don't know anything about those places. I don't want to talk about the, you know, the strife in Latin America and like the drug war. Like just like, I, <laughs> <laughs> like, right. I know, like my, my immediate associations are like, no, I don't want to. So I think that that's maybe why I haven't done that, but that would be a great game to play maybe one day if I felt like the opportunity presented itself, like the right circumstances. It sounds like, but it sounds like you'd be. Dis it sounds like there's some discomfort for you in yeah. being like, oh, ha ha. Yeah, that's a funny ha ha. Joke. I got I'll tell you. this person yeah. I'm Latin. You're like, oh, maybe that's not such a funny yeah. joke. Yeah. For you. Well, but also because it's usually other people from that culture who are asking me because they recognize. Uh -huh. So like that's also part of the con the the context is sometimes it's a a, a person who identifies as 
black, and I'm using that in an exceptionally broad way, um, who asks me because I look like someone they know who is also part black or part Latin American or part um, Mexican or something like that. And then I have to be like, no, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, right. I wish I was because then we'd have so much to, to talk about or bond over. Or like, right, right, right. We'd have a base knowledge to um, talk about something with. Or yeah. as opposed, like, you would, so, so it would be nice to have the opportunity to bond yeah. as opposed to secretly pretending to have their identity yeah. as a way to fucking with them but yeah. not bring you closer. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Do you, are, you sa- are you happy with that answer? You just no, feel like a jerk now. No, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of no, that. don't feel like a jerk. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right, so you don't have to. All right, feel, don't don't feel like a jerk. Yes, yeah, you sir, up here. Does where are you from have it more or less in Canada compared to like Europe? Do you get where you're from? Do you get that question more in Canada than when you're elsewhere in the world? Uh, no, it still happens elsewhere in the world. Yeah. It happens everywhere. Um, not so not so much. I've only been to India like once. Um, which might explain why I feel so uncomfortable with my identity, because I, there, there's this sociologist, and I'm now forgetting her name, but she talks about this idea that like, uh, people who have not spent a lot of time from where they are di- identifiably from, it's called like third generation, um, your third generation kids, you're like you're your new, you're a new kind of hybrid, fancy hybrid, um, and then there are people who. Have, who go back and forth, who spend a lot of time connected to their, where their homeland is. Either they spent a good amount of time growing up there and then learned the language and then like came back. There's a lot of like, I don't know the native tongue of, of Kerala, uh, which is Malayalam, and a lot of people don't know what that is, and I don't know what that is, and I, can, I recognize it on walls and stuff, like when it's written out, but I don't, I don't know how to speak it, so then there's a lot of barriers. As soon as you don't have language, you are uh, immediately a little bit on the outside. And I think that's true in any circumstance. Uh, so the two, the one or two times I've like gone around India, I like people know I'm Indian, but they can tell that you're not Indian. Right. So they like stare at you for a really long, like you'll be walking the street and they'll just look at you until you are basically out of their sight line. Um, and that part of that is because they're thinking about probably, and I'm making an t- assumption, but that you have money because you live somewhere else. You have the freedom and the ability to live somewhere else and not in a country that's a third world country, I think. But maybe they're not. Maybe they're also just thinking, like, here's that cool chick. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But I only have that assumption because my uncles were always like, people are going to rob you. They were like constantly scaring me all the time. You're going to die. You're going to get attacked. And like, so I was always afraid that those people staring at you, something bad was going to happen. So I, I, but I get that question pretty much everywhere. Like I lived in England for a bit of time and I got that question a lot in England. In England, it's even worse because there's so many people. Everyone's like way mixed. There's like fourth generation British person who's like half Indian, a quarter black and like, a quarter white um, or European, and they, they're like, they're so integrated into London life and culture, and so you come up, and that's a more normal, say, like in that environment, I felt like it was more like, how can we find what's in common with each other? There was a different context or feeling right. to the question. Yeah. I'm curious about that. Like, I'm curious if there are times when that question <coughs> makes you feel good and times when it makes you feel bad. Yeah, it, there, yeah definitely there are times it makes what me make, feel good and makes me feel bad. What makes a difference? Bad. Like, what, I guess the feels bad one is easier. What are the feels good one? Like, when does it feel... Uh, usually when... Uh, I've only... I've had this happen, like, a, a considerable amount of times, but 
when I'm in a cab and the cab driver, and this was before Uber, um, the cab driver. This is I'm a so big distinction. Why that big matters. distinction. I'm so, I'm like, it I'm never like, happens I'm during Uber. Okay. Nobody talks to you during Uber. They're like way too right. stressed out to get to the next right, person, right, okay. pick them up for pool, and all that right. stuff. Um, there's no like down chilled chat time. Um, but usually, uh, I've gotten a couple of cab rides for free because the person has found out that like my parents are near, grew up in the same village or near them, because they cannot they they can recognize me. They know exactly what I look like, like where I'm from, and so that's been really cool. That's been like oh, wait. So specifically, the times it feels good is when you get a free cab ride out of it. Yeah. <laughs> I get stuff. Yeah. All right. Okay. No, I, but also it was cool that like I found out more about where my parents were from through this yeah. person. Okay. That was more like the interesting thing. So I, I like never asked for the free ride. They were just like, fares on me, lady. We had a great chat. And I was like, oh, thanks. Also, I'll still pay you. Right. Yeah. Because you're a cab driver and I feel bad and okay. I don't. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we cleared that up. I'm yeah. Glad that up. People were like, that lady was nice and she knew a lot about food, but she doesn't pay cab drivers. <laughs> there was a hand up over there. Was a question? Yes, you, ma'am. When you cook Indian food, is it mm. either a, a way to connect with your mom and your culture, or b just a way to f- yeah feed yourself? Totally multiple choice. Yeah, I I thought a lot about that for this piece because um, Sagan and I talked. She read a draft of it, and then we talked a lot about how we could maybe talk about how like oh yeah, cooking my cooking allows me to connect to more of myself or who I am or some large ephemeral idea of being brown. Um, and I found that really difficult to nail down um, and, and tricky because for my parents, feeding their kids is just a practical, like that's what they know how to make and they're making it. There's no nostalgia attached to what they were doing. And I think that way about a lot of people who cook at home and cook a specific cultural dish or food all the time or uh, cook in a very specific way um it's there's a practicality behind it whereas for me um i have like the world is my oyster here in canada and i have the ability to cook whatever i want when i want to cook it for the most part which is a huge luxury of being part of the first world and food because it's not not everywhere in the world you can do that and so when I do cook Indian food, it feels really like maybe more weighted than it needs to be because it's not actually, it, it feels a bit hokey to be like, and now I'm connecting with the spirit of my dead mother. And we're, like, it just feels like too much. And if I think, if I thought about everything like that all the time, I think I'd probably never cook Indian food then, which would be really sad because I really like cooking it um, and eating it and having other people eat it. So I don't, I, yeah. Cool. All right. I like I, I like that image. Maybe we'll wrap it up there. Ladies and gentlemen, Nina James, ladies Thanks. and gentlemen. <laughs> Trampoline Hall was created in Toronto in the 21st century by Sheila Hetty and it's hosted by me. This episode's lecturer was chosen by Sagan McIsaac. The podcast is produced by Josh Block. Our theme music was composed by Matt Smith. Our coordinating producer is Kate Bars. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can really help us out by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. It helps a lot. I'm Misha Globerman. Thanks for listening.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 